narrated by Andy Rohde. This episode is brought to you by the Ballyraven Patreon and listeners like you. Worm Hill is based on English folklore and an interview with UK artist Tamsin Ashcroft from Wigan. You can find her work at Tamsin Does Art on Instagram or on Etsy under the shop name The Lark and Leverett. The world was once intertwined with magic and populated by magical creatures. Hillworms were one of many formidable predators. Intelligent and selfish, they only lived where they would rule over the land without question or much trouble. Known to be especially irritable, these dragons held lifelong grudges, seeking revenge for even minor transgressions on not only offenders, but their kin. Authors and artists alike describe the animal as the offspring of a lamprey and a demon. Having long-snouted, salamander-esque faces atop a sinuous neck, their draconic nature was obvious. Two round, red and yellow eyes watch challengers confront them and perish, or travelers spot them and flee. Possessing an intense and piercing gaze, the bulbous orbs seem to gleefully anticipate one's next move, carrying wisdom gained over centuries. Animals of longevity, before the decline of the hillworm, the majority of their population was well into their 200th year, and could be expected to live 450 years or more. The older the worm, the smarter. The dragons became more and more unlikable to each other the longer they lived, which is why they were always so few. They rarely got along and reproduced. Beginning life in small or shallow ponds and puddles, Hillworms were amphibious dragon. Spending the first several years of their lives in water, they lengthened from the size of a frog egg to that of a large dog before dwelling on land. Always serpentine, though losing fins and functional gills in adulthood, hillworms continued to grow their entire lives. Bodies stretching to astonishing lengths, most grew to be at least 30 feet long, though the oldest was well over 100 feet. Long forms coiling and undulating with a deceptive grace, they made their homes atop hills. Their namesake, the dragons rested and guarded their territories from these perches. Wrapping their body all the way around the formation, tail tucked under their chin, they could detect movement from all sides at a great distance. The bigger the worm, the bigger the hill needed to be. An ostentatious exterior, hillworm scales shimmered a multitude of vibrant green hues. Reflecting the surrounding light in a mesmerizing display, birds and other animals found themselves in a daze before the dragon, making them easy prey. The grass is sparkling like water, those scales are not only a boon for hunting, but an almost impenetrable defense. Like millions of tiny shields, the worm's scales countered the bite and scratch of other beasts. Though resistant even to many spears and arrows, even they had weak spots and vulnerabilities. Anomalies. On their undersides, the creature possessed a series of growths, small, stubby, spider-like legs. Sensitive, they dug into the ground, allowing the worm to detect vibrations all around. If harmed, great pain resulted, temporarily stunning the beasts. To the dragon's great embarrassment, directly behind the appendages, their hide was scaleless. If lured from their hills, flipped over, or otherwise tricked, hillworms could be defeated, though never easily so. A key to the dragon's downfall, these exploits were later utilized by ever-expanding human communities. 
Always a threat or nuisance, growing villages sought to have these dragon neighbors removed, and towns paid to have them eradicated from desirable regions. Poor, terrified settlements opted instead to flatten their land, denying the creatures a place to make home. Large and fearsome, only the bravest, battle-hardened warriors dared to challenge hillworms at first, or those desiring recognition or grandeur. The majority died a painful death. Gaining knowledge of humans' plans and increasing concerns, none of the dragons warned each other. In fact, some hoped for larger worms' demise, coveting their more comfortable hills. Each believed themselves to be the strongest and smartest. None took human threats too seriously. One hillworm even devised a nefarious plan. First, he made an effort to leave home and hunt for food each night, slithering close to human houses. Listening in to their conversations, after a year, he had learned much of their language. Excitedly, the worm ventured over a rural trail for a prime suspect, any young, gallant knight. To his fortune, he found one. Revealing the locations of his sisters, who once called him stubby and ugly, he also disclosed how one might defeat them, hillworm vulnerabilities, how blades could be slid under scale, and how their violences could be guarded against. Wanting only to teach them a lesson, he withheld some crucial information. Hillworms have a regenerative quality. As long as their head was intact, the sturdiest, boniest portion encasing the brain and heart, impossible to cut with medieval weaponry, they could piece and mend themselves back together. Additionally, if one ever was killed, it would attach a curse unto their killer, preventing the end of their life by any sort of peaceful means. This is why hillworms may fight and squabble and hate each other, but never personally kill one another. Of course, the dragon and his sisters were all attacked, though none were killed. Even with the helpful knowledge, the animals proved difficult to overpower or even stand against. The disdainfully hateful glances of the creatures, or sometimes simply the eye's evil coloration, sent many opponents home before a single attack was traded. Wide nostrils leaked poison, as did its salivating mouth, a long tongue cleaning its talons, scales, and wetting its rows of needle teeth, made scratches, bites, and even touches more painful. A scent of intermingled copper and sulfur denoted the irritant's presence, burning the nose. To one night's befuddlement and consecutive death, the dragons could heal very quickly. It seemed as if they were a problem they would always have to face. Not only a danger to humans, hillworms could make all nearby life ill. The sources these dragons drank from were befouled by their spittle. While the contaminated water wasn't deadly, it brought mild to great discomfort. After the worm's betrayal, the dragons began spitting in all of their local water supplies out of anger. Some took it much further, leaving their homes to squeeze those out on the road like a hungry python, or invading towns and engorging upon sheep, cow, and small children. It was when a pasture was cleared of its residence that a curious thing was discovered. Cow's milk sedated the beasts. Falling into a deep slumber, the dragon could be poked and prodded without reaction. Both peasant and knight attempted to cut it into pieces, but it drowsily reattached itself. As the milk wore off, though, the hillworm became enraged. 
plucking a dead tree from the ground by its tail, they use it as a club to smash houses, people, and anything they loved. The decimated village taught all an important lesson. Regions plagued by hillworms imported and produced as much milk as possible, soothing the creatures. They dared not even touch them. That was until Sir John Lampton returned from war. John had encountered a hillworm in his youth. It, too, was just a child, born in the River Weir a few months prior. Out fishing on a Sunday when he was not supposed to, he caught the small dragon on the end of his hook. No bigger than a thumb, he marveled at its strange body before throwing it down a well. Releasing an angry squawk, the creature fell into complete darkness. The water was cold and the space deep, yet confined. John forgot about the animal by the end of the day. Many years passed and John grew up. The hillworm, however, remained in that well the entire time, strengthening bit by bit, anger at John festering bit by bit. An unexplainable illness spread throughout the town shortly after John's departure. The worm had matured as well, his poisons contaminating the waters. Ready to emerge, it seethed as it climbed. It had thirsted for revenge for long enough. Seven years later, John returned to find his hometown obliterated and his father's estates destitute. The hillworm he had inadvertently imprisoned had destroyed everything. Enraged, he set out to kill the dragon, but not without consulting a witch near Durham. Knowledgeable of the beast, she had long been observing and studying the hillworm. Seeing his resolve and capability, she decided to use him to test a few theories. She told him to cover his armor with spearheads to prevent him from being squeezed, to cover as much of his skin as possible to prevent some of the burning wounds. She also shared diagrams of the creatures, where he should hit, avoid, how he should move, where its blind spots may be, and how to navigate scales with his blade. Solemnly, she warned of how quickly the worm could repair its body. John must lure the creature near fast-flowing water, throwing any chunk he cleaved from the animal into the river, where it would not be able to retrieve it. If separated long enough, it must die. There was a final thing, she warned. Holding a small piece of hide she had treated with various mixtures, divining its properties. She promised John if he did not kill the first thing he saw after cutting the worm into pieces, he and nine generations of his descendants would be morbidly cursed. The only way to break it, she emphasized, was to kill the first thing he saw. Telling his family the plan, they decided to sacrifice the Lampton's dog. Once the dragon had been slain, he would sound his hunting horn three times, signaling for the hound to be released to him. The Lampton family was silent as he walked alone on the trail to where the dragon lived on a giant, rugged boulder. It had become so big that its body made seven large coils around the stone. No one believed John would return, townsfolk giving early condolences, if not with words, their eyes. So many had been lost, they were numb and hopeless. Far away, John had enticed the worm away from its rock to squeeze against his armor, blinded by fury. Stuck to his armor, John was able to plunge his sword deep into the dragon, cutting it in half. Ignoring the shrieks and lashes of the worm, he struggled to roll the dismembered torso into the water before the beast could reattach it. With a loud splash, it sped away downstream and the worm's terror heightened as the blade bit a second, third, fourth time. 
Pulling the horn from his belt, John blew three notes. When he saw his father running towards him and weeping with joy, relief, pride, he fell to his knees and wept too. Sir John Lambton was the first to kill a hillworm. He was also credited with developing the first method to slay them. One by one, the hillsides lost their shimmers. The water lost its bitterness. A ballad in Sir John's honor rang throughout the gently sloping land, and the hillworms completely disappeared. Here is where I would normally start playing our chat with an artist. My first solo interview, it did not go quite as planned. Tamsin and I had a wonderful talk about her art career and influences, like her father who was a technical botanical illustrator, her time at Liverpool College, her gallery shows. We explored what content has influenced her work, like the video game Shadows of the Colossus, and movies like Pan's Labyrinth and Labyrinth. We talked about the many local ghost stories and the overall lack of cryptids, and her love of the Loch Ness Monster. And she shared a lovely yet sad story about a creature known as the Lambton Worm, who didn't really seem too terrible, and the man who killed it and was cursed, he and his first two or three descendants dying an unpleasant death. However, all of those recordings were lost and unable to be recovered, which is a great shame. My scribbled and mostly illegible notes were not too helpful either, written more for organizing the interview's clips. Though this small blurb doesn't do all the wonderful stories and information she shared any justice, we encourage listeners to instead check out her art yourself and ask questions there. Tamsin is an amazing artist, and I encourage you all to follow and peruse her art on Instagram, at TamsinDoesArt, as well as the products she has for sale on Etsy, on the Larkin Leverett. We appreciate her so much for chatting, and I would have never learned about the Lambton Worm otherwise. <laughs> 